Welcome to the COVID-19 webinar series. Our segment today is lung transplantation in the era of COVID-19. I am Stephanie Levine. I'm the president of CHESS for a few more weeks. I'm based in San Antonio at UT Health San Antonio, as well as the San Antonio Veterans Health Administration. So our topic today, as we mentioned, is lung transplantation, the era of COVID-19. I've had a long-term interest in lung transplantation, and I want to thank the COVID task force of CHEST for inviting me to moderate today. I also want to thank the CHEST staff, our three speakers, and the attendees. So since the pandemic began, of course, lung transplantation has been affected in, in many ways. And so what we've tried to organize today is to talk about lung transplantation as it affects, um, affected by COVID-19 for donation and those patients post-transplant who develop COVID-19 and how they're managed, as well as as the pandemic is going on, we're now starting to get requests for respiratory failure due to COVID-19 as an indication for lung transplantation. So that's what we have in store today. Uh, we have three speakers, each will be speaking for about 10 minutes and then we'll save about 20, 25 minutes for questions at the end. So I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our panelists now. Beth, if we could have the next slide. So first, uh, Dr. Debbie Levine, she is our medical director here at UT Health San Antonio, and she'll be talking about lung donation in the era of COVID-19. This will be followed by Dr. Harpreet Gruel, and he is soon to be joining the lung transplant team at Columbia, and he'll be talking about the tri-state area experience in post-transplant patients infected with COVID-19. And then we'll hear from Dr. Marie Boudev. She is the Director of Lung Transplantation at the Cleveland Clinic, and she'll be talking about who to refer and who to list due to chronic respiratory failure from COVID-19. So um, after that, many of you, when you registered, submitted questions. We have about 20 or 30 unique questions. I think many of those will be answered um, from our presenters, but those that, that have not been answered, we will answer at the end of the talk. In addition, please feel free to post uh, questions on the chat and we'll direct those mm -hmm. to the appropriate speaker. So with that, I think we'll, we'll start with Dr. Debbie Levine. Thank you. Thanks, Steph. And I'd like to thank Stephanie Levine, our president, as well as Chest and the rest of the panel for inviting me to be on the panel and talk about lung donation during COVID pandemic. Um, next. No disclosures. Next. So I don't think any of us could have predicted back in December when COVID was first described in 2019, the considerable impact we've had, COVID has had on us economically, socially, and even more importantly, on global healthcare. All health services, no matter where, have had to reconfigure and reconstruct the way we deliver care. Next. And organ transplantation is absolutely no exception. For lung transplant, there's existing studies and registries that we all know about on candidates uh, and related issues in terms of COVID, whether it's diagnostics, management, or outcomes. But for the next few minutes, I'd like us to focus on the extraordinary adoption in the field of organ donation and the current um, impact, as well as the impact that we're going to have long term in donor uh, practices. So this section will briefly address the impact on lung donor yield, altered process of organ donation, and the establishment of donor assessment uh, recommendations. And next. So the slide on the left, the orange slide kind of shows us weekly the number of deceased donors that were recovered over the last several months. And you can see in around March, early March, the big uh, dip uh, into um, the donors that recovered by week. And this kind of graph on the left, the blue one, mirrors that in terms of actual transplants, all organ transplants that were done weekly as well. And you can see they kind of are the mirror image of each other. Next. Since we're talking about lung transplants, uh, you can compare lung donors on the left to other organ, uh, other transplants. And you can see that even though the kind of pattern is the same between all transplants and lung transplant, the slope is much more severe with lung transplants. I think that's something that we all have felt and 
uh, known throughout the last several months. Next. I think this is easier to see when you look at the numbers of U.S. transplants per week, breaking it down into different organs. And so I put the abdominal organs on top, the kidney and liver, and the heart and lung, the thoracic on the bottom. And you can see that subtle slope down in kidney and liver, uh, and it's quite different than heart and lung, especially the lung. And of course, this is what we are feeling compared to those in other uh, organs, especially the abdominal organs. Next. This graph, what I did was I put in the same type of graph we're seeing for the whole country, but broke it down into regions. And you can see that everybody is different. They've all felt the pandemic differently. So looking at the Northeast, you can see uh, when New York really had um, their biggest issue in, in the spring, they really had a prolonged period of time with uh, decreased transplants. But when they came up, they stabilized out. And that's quite different than the other uh, uh, regions. Look at Texas and the Southwest, where there's multiple ebbs and flows where they may not have had as long of a, uh, a surge, but they still had multiple uh, um, periods of time when the numbers of transplants decreased. Um, next. These slides are coming from a really nice article that was done by an OPO, an organ procurement organization, that sent out a survey to all of uh, the whole country uh, of organ procurement organizations. And what they did was they wanted to compare the period of time between March and May in 2019 and March and May in 2020. And you can see in several characteristics, there's quite a difference. So in donor family authorizations, the family getting authorities, you know, getting author authority to have a donor from the donor family, you can see that that decreased in 2020 by 17%. Next. And you can see when you get to organ recovery, this characteristic was much, much worse. In 2019 um, to 2020, there was a decrease in 33%. Uh, so a third of organ recovery, and remember this isn't just lungs, it's all organs, it was quite, uh, quite decreased. Next. This slide really breaks down uh, heart, lung, liver, and kidney, and it shows us that when you separate lung out, it really was much more significant, just like when we saw in the UNO status, so 30% of lungs were uh, not, uh, were, were decreased from prior year. Next. And this was an interesting slide from the same data, looking at the donor etiology of death. And in 2019 to 2020, there was a decrease uh, uh, percentage of, of deaths from MVAs or motor vehicle accidents and by 25% and that would not be surprising since this was during the kind of shutdown of everything during that time, March to May. One surprising thing or maybe not so surprising was the substance abuse increased in 2020 by 35% uh, and they had a statistically significant increase in percent of deaths from substance abuse, whether it be opioids or um, alcohol or others. Next. Well, I didn't want to end this part of the session on a, uh, on a downside. So I wanted to show you um, the organ transplants year to date. And you can see that from, from 2019 in the blue and 2020 in the green in multi-organ transplants or other organ transplants, really the numbers are pretty parallel. And if you can kind of imagine, it looks like even in the, in the green, it might be even overcoming in the next few months. In lung transplants on the right, it's not as exact, but it does look like it's going into the right direction, even though there is a lag. Next. The second thing we wanted to talk about was altered processes of organ donation, and there's a lot of them, but today we're going to just talk about what all the societies, transplant societies and organizations really wanted to focus on was not only to protect healthcare workers, but also to decrease donor-derived infections, was to really minimize the number of personnel that were involved in procurements, either in the operating room or traveling, and making sure they're all screened epidemiologically as well as clinically. The AST American Society of Transplant took that a step further and say, we strongly believe that's in the best interest of organ donation and transplant team members to decrease the number of travels um, by having local uh, teams procure organs and have them sent out. And this is one of the things that could be long standing, not just during the era of COVID. Next. 
Another thing that changed during COVID was regionally, during times of surge, centers would put their patients on non-urgent, uh, non-urgent patients on status seven because there was either a fear or a concern of donor-derived infections or some centers just didn't have the hospital resources, the physicians, the equipment, either in the donor hospital or the recipient hospital. And one more change was that OPOs in March of 2020 really started to transition to work off-site, both for referral and donation. And that may be another way that we are going to use um, things that are for now, but we'll use it in the future as well. Next. So are there any recommendations on donor assessment and selection, our last period, our last section? Next. Well, I think in the beginning of March, when things started happening and everyone really didn't know what to do in the U.S., um, Dr. Marie Boudev, who's, in a, who's um, on our panel today, and Dr. Maria Crespo, had the forward, uh, foresight to say, hey, let's not just talk to our friends. Let's send out a survey to Europe, here, everywhere, and get the experience in a con conglomerate way where we're all working together. And they asked several questions that really moved the field forward. Uh, next. Uh, remembering that this was the beginning of the um, pandemic for us and getting that help from the Europeans and others really was really, really good for all of us. Next. I think uh, in terms of other recommendations besides our surveys and our experience from our colleagues, all of these transplant organizations and societies have their own iterations of recommendations. We're not going to go through them all, but they're all pretty much similar. Very, very slight differences in them. Next, the IHSLT, International Society of Heart Lung Trans, has the most recent iteration um, and with multiple different types of um, recommendations that we can go through uh, during our question and answers. Next. Uh, and all of the recommendations from every society includes epidemiologic screening, next, and clinical screening. And these are same kind of questions that you're going to get when you're walking into your hospital every morning. And this was something that every patient needs, every donor needs. Next. No, yeah. The IHSLT also put in its newest um, uh, iteration about what about these donors with suspected or confirmed exposure? They're even giving us um, recommendations on that uh, next, which we can go through later too. The American Society of Transplant had very, very similar recommendations to the IHSLT. One of the differences they did have, though, was the IHSLT asked for viral testing within 72 hours of procurement, um, whereas the AST asked for, hey, we can have that, but we'd also like another one between 24 and 48 hours before procurement, if feasible. Um, if it was a thoracic organ, they really, really preferred to have that one, one of the two, um, uh, performed by uh, with a lower uh, respiratory tract sample. Next. So closing thoughts, um, really, I think the biggest thing is even during a pandemic, lung transplantation remains a vital life-saving component of our health systems, and it needs to continue even through these hard times. And in all healthcare, not just in transplant, there has been uncertainty in this last year, but it really is amazing to see how, how many how we all adapted or are trying to adapt to all this new knowledge. And I think with more time and more experience, um, it's going to be bring more recommendations and new ideas and probably a lot more hope. And I think that's happened in the last couple months as we've seen things open up. I think the biggest thing I can leave you with right now is the individualization of this donor-recipient pair when you're trying to make this decision uh, in the middle of the night. And it's not just the CT scan, it's not just the COVID test, it's remembering that it's that donor, that recipient, the situation, and knowing what's going to be important for that life-saving um, uh, practice of transplantation for that particular patient. Next. And I thank you so much and look forward to questions. Thank you very much. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My name is Harpreet. I'm a lung transplant pulmonologist. Uh, thank you to Chest and uh, my colleagues on this panel. Uh, I'm going to be speaking about COVID-19 and lung transplant recipients. Uh, we're going to be looking at some of the outcomes and then looking at some of the management strategies in both the non COVID transplant patient population and in those that were stricken with COVID-19. 
Uh, the other plug I want to put in is that, you know, donation is very important. Uh, it saves lives. One person can save eight lives. So please donate, uh, be an organ donor. It helps us quite a bit to save these lives. Next. I don't have any disclosures. Next. So again, I'm going to be just really focusing on outcomes, management strategies, both in the non-COVID -transplant, uh, non transplant population and in the COVID population. And then I'm going to leave us with a few questions that I think that need to be answered still. Next. So let's start with numbers. Uh, I thought it was very important to get perspective as to where we stand today. Uh, this is about three days old, um, seven and a half million in the country, uh, total positive cases, uh, over 200,000 deaths. And within the last nine days or so, another 300,000 deaths. So by no means uh, the pandemic is over. Certainly we're not at the height of the pandemic, but it's still there. There are still new cases that are actively, uh, you know, coming out and, um, and looking at that, let's move on to the next slide. So why, why is that important? Um, because I wanted to put this in perspective. Uh, and when I was asked to give this talk uh, to speak about transplant COVID, I wanted to focus on the areas that were the hardest hit, New York, New Jersey areas where essentially all transplant activity had to be halted because the hospital systems were just overwhelmed and we just didn't have space left. And then Pennsylvania area, specifically Philadelphia area, uh, as you can see, 23,000 deaths in New York City, 16,000 deaths in New Jersey, and 2,000 in the Pennsylvania area. So moving forward to just focus on now COVID uh, and lung transplant in the next slide. So what are some of the transplant numbers when we look at these uh, patients? Uh, I wanted to create a sample size that would represent uh, the lay transplant population throughout the United States. So the criteria was to find from low to high volume centers. Currently on the SRTR registry, there are 74 lung transplant centers that are listed out of which about 50 do 20 lung transplants a year or more. The five centers that are gonna be represented is gonna be Columbia, NYU, uh, New Jersey, Temple, and Penn. In the years from 2015 to 2020, an estimated about 1,700 transplants were done. Out of those, we estimate there's somewhere between 1,200 to 1,300 uh, that are actively being followed. Again, this is a conservative estimate. So I made phone calls to all these centers and spoke to my colleagues, uh, and we came up uh, with total cases of 71 positive lung transplant cases that were reported. And the, uh, the, the 20 of them passed away. So about a 28% mortality is what we saw. Next. So what are some of the clinical presentations? They were not any different than the non-transplant population. The one thing that was very important from discussions with these programs and looking at literature, if a lung transplant patient was very sick and they ended up getting intubated, meaning they were on life support, uh, mortality was 100%. Uh, otherwise, um, patients recovered and they did well. Now, again, this is, again, a small sample size. It does not necessarily represent all the patients that were intubated, but certainly if they were intubated, it was, it was, it was very much a concern. Next. A little bit of background information about transplant, and I thought it was very important to kind of highlight this. Uh, transplant population is always at risk for developing some form of an infectious, infectious process after transplant. And the transplant patients are very well educated from early on prior to getting a transplant about the complications. One of the things that we often focus on is prevention. Um, some, it's not uncommon to see them wearing masks in the clinics, you know, maintaining distance from others that have been infected, um, protecting themselves from infection, washing hands. And they're also very, very much in tune with their own health that they monitor their own vitals, they monitor their own lung function. And I think that was very important in this pandemic because it only reinforced in the lung transplant population to protect themselves. Uh, and, and that's why I think we didn't see such a large number of uh, transplant cases that were COVID positive. So moving on, uh, transplant management. So, you know, I think prevention is and was the key and it's, it will moving forward. There's nothing like not getting COVID. Um, what are some of the things we did as a community in these areas, especially at the height of uh, COVID? 
uh, we leveraged technology. Telemedicine played a large role. Uh, virtual visits uh, to texting, uh, emails. Even at our program, we also set up virtual physical therapy, and it was similar in some of the other programs to maintain good health in our recipients. Uh, then we also did, um, some of the programs did what we call remote spirometry monitoring. Now, this is generally a, a common practice where patients track their lung function, but one of the programs even linked it into their EMR system and set alarms as thresholds. So if lung function started to drop in a recipient, it would alarm the providers. They could reach out to patient and uh, assess what was happening. Uh, also, there was app-based systems uh, that were utilized uh, where patients would check in once or twice daily. They would input their signs or symptoms or and vitals, and these were often tracked and patients were contacted should uh, something alarm uh, or they would present fevers or symptoms suggestive of an infectious process or otherwise. Next. So management, uh, initially, I, I think the important thing to note in this uh, slide is there's a temporal relationship to all of this. Early on, uh, azithromycin hydroxychloroquine was the flavor. Uh, that's what was being used and a lot of centers have used it. Um, but now I think as we've learned more about the virus, more and more we've shifted our focus towards uh, a three-pronged approach uh, to antivirals, uh, steroids, uh, and convalescent plasma. And as, as everybody's aware, there's now more and more data to support these strategies. Um, with regards to maintenance immune suppression, um, most lung transplant patients have at baseline some form of immune suppression strategy, and generally they're on triple immune suppression. Uh, the consensus among most of the programs was uh, that the cell cycle inhibitors, Celsept or uh, mycophenolate and Imuran were held uh, in those that were sick, uh, and some were managed at home. Uh, patients that were requiring oxygen or, or that needed critical life support were the ones that were admitted into the hospitals. Other medications that were utilized, uh, again, these, these are medications that were utilized on compassionate or emergency basis, uh, tocilizumab, anakinra, and etoposide, uh, but these are not generally utilized on a, on a standard basis in the lung transplant population in these areas. Moving next. So transplant activity, uh, I want to say that Early on, um, only urgent visit, for example, if somebody was discharged right before the transplant, after lung transplant, those are the patients that are very much in need of being seen early on because their immune system uh, is evolving. Also, their uh, immunosuppression needs to be tailored. Those are the only patients that we're seeing. Usually, a pre-symptom um, screen was done prior to coming to clinic. Also, COVID testing was done. Uh, at our program, we would do nasopharyngeal swabs prior to bringing the patients in. And now most of the programs have moved towards baseline activity. I would say 80 to 90% activity is where we stand today. Bronchoscopies, again, protecting uh, the providers as well as the patients. Similar strategy was utilized. And now programs are back to using a bronchoscopy to look for um, rejections, silent rejections, especially in those that are early on in the transplant period. Next. So what are some of the future questions? I think vaccine development is a big question and, and I think it's gonna be extremely helpful in the transplant population and antiviral treatments that are currently under study. What are some of the long-term outcomes? I think this is a very important question and it's an unknown. Um, are patients going to start to develop early lung function decline and it's going to become chronic lung allograft dysfunction? Or is there going to be an acceleration? In speaking with my colleagues, uh, there were a few cases, um, one or two that did show an accelerated decline in those that already had some lung function decline prior to COVID. Uh, there was one patient that was mentioned that does have post-COVID uh, scarring or uh, fibrosis, uh, but it was not significant enough and they're watching the patient closely. There's one that was being uh, considered for retransplantation. And retransplantation is going to remain a question because we don't know how the immune system is going to react after retransplant in these patients uh, as uh, it could be wired to react to new lungs. And in general, retransplantation is uh, rarely done in the lung transplant world. Um, next. So with that, I want to just say thank you to the programs that helped me put this information together, New York, uh, Columbia, Temple, NYU, Penn, and uh, New Jersey RWJ. Uh, and I'm going to stop here.
Thank you, Harpreet. Uh, I'd like to thank the college and Dr. Levine for the invitation this afternoon. Good afternoon to all of you and thank you for joining our webinar. Over the next 10 minutes, I'll be discussing when to consider lung transplantation for respiratory failure due to COVID-19. Next slide. I have no disclosures. Next slide. As I mentioned, we have several, uh, we have about 10 minutes and I have several aims I'd like to focus on that I've listed here, but in the essence of time, we'll go to the next slide. The majority of COVID-19 patients have mild or asymptomatic courses. More severe disease is less common. 10% of patients who are infected may require ICU admission for ARDS, and the mortality rate in this subgroup is very, very high. Lung transplant may be considered a salvage therapy for only a selected group of patients who have refractory ARDS or pulmonary fibrosis. In the acute setting for COVID-19 infection, the utility of transplantation is limited for several reasons. One, there may be several comorbidities that could pre preclude to transplant, including age and BMI. There could also be secondary complications as a result of the infection, including renal failure, frailty, as well as other organ failure. Next slide. The experience of transplantation for COVID-related ARDS is limited, and therefore the, there is a limited number of published as well as media reports out there. In the United States, there are several centers now that have, had, that have had media reports of successful transplants in patients that suffer from COVID ARDS. These include Northwestern, University of Florida Health, as well as the Cleveland Clinic. But some, these are mainly media reports, and I'm sure there are other centers in the country that have not even reported uh, their cases. The published reports are even less. The first published reports came out at the beginning of the pandemic from the Wuchi People's Hospital in Wuchi, China. Then following that report came out another case report from Hangzhou, China, which we'll discuss today. And the most recent case report was published in the Lancet in August of 2020 from the Vienna Group. The Italian group has also transplanted a patient, an 18-year-old male for uh, COVID-related ARDS. But again, this was only published in the media. Next slide. I would caution you, there is a publication bias that should be expected. This is a new disease and likely more cases have been performed but not reported due to poor outcomes. Before I move on, I do wanna caution you when we talk about some of these case reports from China, they'll be hard for you to understand some of the maintenance therapy, some of the preparation for transplant, as well as the post-operative care of these patients. And the descriptions and some of the language that is used can be a little bit confusing. But I'd urge you to look at the uh, case report from Vienna, Austria. It, in exquisite detail, goes over the management of a patient that had ARDS due to COVID and was listed for transplant. On that note, why don't we talk about some of the published reports out there. Next slide. The largest case series we have is out of Wuchi, and this case series includes three males. That is the case series that we have, and this is the largest one we have. Interestingly enough, the age of these individuals ranged between 58 and 73 years old. They had a couple of comorbidities. Their BMIs were not issues. All of these patients were on ECMO and mechanical ventilation before transplant and then we're on ECMO post-transplant. All of these patients, the days from illness from onset to transplant range from 37 to 44 days. All of these patients had negative COVID-19 testing prior to transplant and this was done from multiple sites and no other end organ dysfunction. All of these individuals received convalescent plasma. I don't know if they received and it wasn't highlighted if they had received other therapies. Two of the patients received bilateral sequential lung transplants. One got a low bar left upper low because of a narrow chest on the right. And another patient received a right single lung plus a heart transplant. And it's a little bit interesting how they describe this. This was a patient that ended up having an intra-op arrest, a V-fib arrest, and they couldn't manage it medically or with uh, massage. Subsequently, they decided to do the heart transplant at the same time, and it's quite convenient. They had the heart available at that time. This case report also goes over the conduct of operation at this center. All of these cases were done in a negative pressure room with a special workflow and PAPRs on the doctors, nurses, and anesthesiologists. The first patient 
the heart-lung patient died on post-op day number one. Actually, he arrested intraoperatively after the new heart was placed. Two of the patients were still alive at post-op day number 22 and 12. Two of the patients, again, needed post-operative VV support, VV ECMO support, and, and renal replacement therapy. Maintenance immunosuppression consisted of lower doses of cyclosporin A, no anti-metabolites, and a steroid taper. All of the patients were rehabbed early postoperatively, but it was unclear whether or not they had pre-transplant rehabilitation. These patients were tested for COVID-19 by fecal, BAL, and nasopharyngeal and serum um, testing, and these remained negative postoperatively at various time points. Next slide. The authors of this case series had several recommendations for transplant centers or, or investigators considering transplanting patients with COVID-related ARDS. They recommended that irreversibility should be of uh, respiratory failure should be confirmed, that all res potential recipients should be COVID-19 negative from multiple test sites, there should be no other organ dysfunction in a potential candidate, and they offered some medical, some best practices for the medical team, including the use of PAPRs, head covers, and also coming up, and they actually rehearsed this, nonverbal communication tools, meaning gestures and actions that could be used in the operating room because of the PAPRs and the head covers, they had so much trouble being able to hear each other. And also instituting a rotation plan to prevent fatigue due to heavy protective clothing that both the nurses, surgeons, and anesthesiologists wore. Next slide. The next case series was a geriatric case series that consisted of two patients from Hangzhou. And um, these uh, individuals were 66 to 70 years old. They were treated with a multiple number of different um, therapies for their infection prior to transplantation. Both patients were bridged to transplant at the ages of 66 and 70 to transplant on ECMO. And both patients required VV ECMO post-transplant. Both patients had negative COVID testing prior to transplant. They had no other organ dysfunction. Now this is where this, uh, the cases get a little bit um, difficult to understand or tease out. The first patient had an acute type of um, ACR presentation within 40 hours of transplant, which was treated with steroids. It's not clear whether this was PGD or actually ACR. The second candidate, it was stated they had a high number of HLA mismatches and they got a high dose of steroids to prevent ACR. Again, both patients were uh, needed VV ECMO post-transplant and they were followed closely um, for COVID-19 reoccurrence with post-transplant BAL, sputum, and feces um, testing for COVID-19 and they all remained negative. But there was no information on discharge or survival data at the time of the um, publication of this case report. Next slide. The authors did have a few recommendations that I stated here. I think the most important one is that viral RNA should be tested in the sputum and the BAL and be negative 24 hours apart, tested twice before considering a candidate. They also make mention early rejection could occur because these individuals get a lot of blood transfusions prior to going to transplant. Next slide. But I think the case report that's most interesting is the one that appeared in the Lancet in August of 2020 by the Vienna Group. It was a report of a, one individual, a female, 44 years old with some comorbidities, but these were not life-threatening. She was not on any other therapies for this. She actually was placed on VV ECMO on day number 13 after she tested positive. She received a gamut of therapy for her infection that's listed here, but she continued to decline. She was referred for transplant on day number 48 after testing positive. At that time, she was on pressors. She actually had a chest hematoma. She, in addition, had a left temporal bleed and she received multiple products. She was definitely VV ECMO dependent. Her tidal volumes were only around 50. She spontaneously opened her eyes during sedation-free periods. This center, the Vienna Center, is an extremely aggressive ECMO center, but they were unable to ambulate this patient, mainly due to the large configuration and larger cannulas that she had. Interestingly enough, she had a CT angio that demonstrated she had irreversible lung disease. She had complete consolidation and large necrotic areas in her lungs and no perfusion to the lower lobes. Next slide. 
In terms of her testing, her PT-PCR uh, real-time testing for SARS-CoV-2 was positive repeatedly from the BAL and sputum. The cycle thresholds were around 33, and that suggested that this could be residual virus or dead virus without actual infectivity. Instead, this investigator group decided to use virocultures to best define the presence of active SARS-CoV-2 infection. All of these virocultures were negative after seven days after multiple passages. So on day 52, after she presented, um, after being positive for COVID-19, uh, the decision was made to list her for transplant. So that was 52 days after she first presented. Her virus cultures were negative. This was greater than five weeks. There were no other options in this individual that had a narrow window and single organ failure. Her husband consented to the surgery. Next slide. So this patient ended up having and receiving a double lung transplant on post-op day number 50, or and I shouldn't say post-op day, I'm sorry, positive day number 58. She ended up having her ECMO decannulated on day 61. And finally, on day 121, she was transferred to a non-ICU ward. Her recovery was slow. In addition, she was highly sensitized. So both pre-transplant and post-transplant, she needed immunomodulatory therapy. She received IVIG and PLEX therapy, both for desensitization and management post-transplant. The authors recommended, uh, based on this case, number one, they recommended using viroculture since the RT-PCR results may remain positive for a time. They also cautioned that transplant is only an option for a small portion of patients. And you should be careful because many of these COVID-19 patients that are infected could be older and have multiple comorbidities and a higher BMI. They also cautioned that some patients with ARDS and COVID-19 may have some potential to recover. And this has been shown in several studies from Europe. Lung transplant should only be considered in those patients that have irreversible damage of their lungs. It's interesting from this very aggressive ECMO center, they actually commented on the limited practicability or practicality of awake and ambulatory ECMO, and that there is a narrow window to make a decision for a transplant. If you wait too long trying to rehab the patient, you could miss your opportunity due to infection and other organ damage. Next slide. Following the publication of this case report, there was an outstanding commentary, editorial commentary in the same, in the same um, journal. It, this was done by Marcelo Seifel and Shaf Kasifji from the Toronto Group. They proposed 10 predictors for assessment of transplant suitability for candidates with COVID ARDS. One, the potential re uh, recipient should be less than 65 years old. They should have single organ dysfunction. There should have been allotted sufficient time for recovery, and transplant should not be considered less than four to six weeks after initial clinical signs of respiratory failure. There should be radiological evidence of irreversible disease, like we saw in the Vienna case. The patient should be awake and be able to discuss transplantation. In addition, the patient should be participating in pulmonary rehab while waking, and centers should follow typical criteria for transplantation that they would have. BMI cutoffs, and also the presence of other comorbidities like severe coronary disease should be a, a caution. They should also, potential recipients should have recent negative SARS, COVID testing, or infectivity assays using deep respiratory tract samples demonstrating non-viable virus. Next slide. The last two recommendations I think are the most important. When referring a patient for lung transplantation for COVID-related ARDS or pulmonary fibrosis, refer them to a transplant center that has experience. Experience in taking care of high-risk transplants, experience with ECMO bridging to transplant, and also this will probably be only a few centers that will be able to manage these sort of patients. And it should be centers that have a broad donor pool and a low weight list mortality. Next slide. The ISA CHIL-T also had some guidance in regards to when to list a patient and what to have in place for listing a patient for COVID-19 related respiratory failure. This was published and created by the COVID Task Force, which was led by, um, um, uh, uh, by one of the ID physicians from the West Coast and was an outstanding document that was updated on 
updated routinely almost every month. The most recent reiteration came out in August of 2020 that Deb Levine mentioned in her talk. The recommendations from the ISHLT were that two negative SARS-CoV PCR tests 24 to 48 hours apart, similar to what we saw from the China case study recommendation, be included amongst certain other criteria that I've listed here. Next slide. Changing gears, from an administrative standpoint, UNOS has proposed a change for listing a patient for lung transplantation due to COVID-19 injury. The reason for this proposal was so when you specify when COVID-19 related organ failure is the cause for candidate listing, there was no standard pathway, especially at this time. So what they've done, they've established two new diagnosis code in UNOS. One is COVID-19 pulmonary fibrosis. The second is COVID-19 ARDS. This has gone up for public comment. This public comment phase ended October 1st. And right before I got on this webinar, it, it looks like this will be implemented in October 20, on October 28, 2020. So very soon for those of you that work at transplant centers, look out for this. Next slide. I'm gonna end on a couple of take home points similar to what Debbie and Harpreet mentioned. This is a new disease. Our experience is evolving. The considerations we have now for transplantation are not guidelines. A transplant center's experience is going to be vital for acceptable outcomes in this complex population. And you need to look at each potential candidate on a case-by-case -case basis. And this disease and the uh, after effects of this disease are very dynamic. The ultimate effect of this life-saving therapy on early, mid, and long-term survival is really unknown. In same risk of ACR, AMR, and early CLAD, we don't know. But I think the quote that I love the most was from, from Marcelo Seipel in the, docu in the commentary from The Lancet, the prevention of COVID-19 um, infection remains the best strategy to save lives. It's not transplant that will save the majority of lives, it will be prevention. And on that note, all of you continue to stay safe and we'll be happy to take questions. Thank you so much, everyone. So go ahead um, for attendees if you wanna post additional questions in the um, Q&A, but we do have several questions that were submitted at the time of registration. So um, Dr. Budep, since you, you described that patient from Vienna who was persistently positive, that situation probably comes up. Uh, we, I think we've seen that in, in non-transplant, non uh, non-patients -pa not being considered for transplantation, but who are persistently positive. How are you handling that? Or how do you recommend that is handled? So that's a great question. I think we've gone the course of the Austrian program and we've gone ahead and done these viral cultures and using those. We've been fortunate enough in the patient that we transplanted here at the clinic, they were COVID negative. By deep culture, we actually did a BAL bilaterally to determine whether or not they were still COVID positive and they were COVID negative. Thank, thank you. Another question for you also, um, you mentioned the two new diagnoses. How will that affect the LAS? Great question. That will not affect the LAS now. In the future, as we get more information, maybe this will be something that will be incorporated into future changes with the LAS. But right now, you will not have any change in your LAS. These will be within Group D. So whatever your patient was going to get with the Group D diagnosis, that's the sort of LA, that's the contribution to the LAS. Thank you. Um, Debbie, are you aware, Dr. Levine, of any reports of SARS-CoV-2 transmission from donor to recipient? Um, no, not. there's been no report. Can you guys hear me? There's been no reported uh, donor-derived transmission. Um, there's been, um, I think, uh, no reports. I don't know if uh, there's anyone that hasn't reported it or, you know, sometimes I guess it could be hard if there is a hospital outbreak, but there's been no reported donor-derived transmission at, at, that we know of in the literature has been published. Okay. Um, Dr. Gural, could you please describe the remote PFT systems that you were mentioning in a little bit more detail? Oh, you're on mute. Thank you so much. Uh, so generally patients, when they get uh, lung transplant as part of their discharge process is monitoring uh, their own uh, health. And part of that involves 
monitoring lung function and generally what we call a home spirometer. Essentially, they can check how their lung function is doing and monitor the trend of the lung function. Uh, generally, they will call in if it's a function that's dropping a certain number of days or certain percentage. Uh, the program that I had discussed this with was uh, NYU. Uh, what they had done is part of their, uh, their spirometers were linked into a software that was linked into EPIC, which is a uh, electronic medical record system that's being utilized by, by a lot of programs. And they set a threshold. For example, if somebody's lung function is dropping 10%, uh, then there will be an alert. The thing to know about lung transplant populations, sometimes they have such a reserve that they could be dropping a lung function and not recognize it. And in COVID, we've also seen that there are there is a variety of presentations from asymptomatic to those that have had severe disease requiring life support. And another question, you mentioned that you've used some plasma <laughs> treatment in your COVID cases. Could you comment, expand a little bit more upon that? Yes, uh, so, you know, currently uh, in speaking with the programs, uh, a lot of these programs are using convalescent plasma either on compassionate emergency use or as part of a study. Uh, again, we don't know the extent of um, impact in these lung transplant patients yet because we don't have that data at this point in time. Um, so, so I think it'll be some time before we get some of that data. I think there needs to be a lot of collaborative work among transplant programs to put all our patients together to really look at the impact of these therapies in these patients. And you had mentioned um, tocilizumab, um, your experience with that for cytokine storm? Yes, so tocilizumab, uh, an IL-6 antagonist, it was being utilized in the non-transplant population. Uh, the one study uh, is out of Columbia that looked at 117 patients. Uh, 29 of those, these are all solid organ transplant recipients. 29 of them had received a tocilizumab. So they did a case control uh, study on 29 paired with 29. There were 15 lung transplants in that study. Five received tocilizumab, 10 did not. And essentially what they identified uh, was patients who were very sick, meaning those who are on high amount of oxygen or on life support, tended to get uh, tocilizumab. So early on, when you look at it without controlling for variables, it looked like they had poor outcomes. Now that's a confounder, but when they corrected for steroids, kidney disease, high blood pressure, they noted that it did not have impact on outcomes. Although it was noted the patients that did get it were much more sicker. Thank you. Um, Debbie, kind of two related questions. Um, if you have someone listed who develops COVID-19, how long are you waiting um, to remove them from status seven? Um, so they're already listed. So I think it would be the same thing as if a patient came in. And so I think once the patient is cleared, um, almost like any of the recommendations, I think at least uh, 28 days from the time of, of, of uh, no symptoms or being negative. I think in lung transplant patients, I think the shedding is longer and I don't think anybody really knows if you do how long their test will be positive unless you're doing like I think Marie talked about cultures. Uh, and uh, there's not that many places uh, that are available uh, to do cultures on everybody. Um, so I think it'd be on a case by case basis but um, if a patient is listed, they would be delisted and um, uh, follow them at least um, when they're not symptomatic. And, and I guess that's the other thing is, are they symptomatic or not? Um, but that's a really good question. Very good question. Thank you. Marie, we've seen these patients, they're on neuromuscular blockade and steroids and they're so deconditioned. How do you evaluate that and weigh that into the timing of when to consider listing them? That is absolutely the million dollar question because you may miss your window for transplant as the Austrian group, an aggressive group clearly said that you could wait trying to rehab them and in the meantime, they'll get other organ failure or infection. So there is something to be said about this. You have to get an assessment of how much progress you've made over the period you were taking care of them to achieve stability. But if neuromuscular blockade and all these other things have added to so much 
deconditioning and myopathy, that's not going to be reversible quickly. And you kind of have to cut your losses at that point and as a program, decide whether you're going to move forward or go to palliation. And it's a tough decision and there is no diehard guidelines on this. And how about um, an opinion on transplanting off of ECMO or um, even later than that, chronic after they've proven to have continued chronic respiratory failure? Yeah, so that brings up the question of how long do you wait? So sometimes people will say, let me see if I can get them off ECMO in a reasonable period of time, see if what they do afterwards, are they gonna be a respiratory cripple? We have not encountered as many patients that are in that post ECMO and now recovered but respiratory cripples, but we may. That may be what our future will be as this pandemic goes on. Right now, I think the majority of patients that are presenting to centers are being transplanted off of ECMO the most severe cases and have given allotment of time. The key um, thing to remember is how long to wait. And from at least these few case reports, it's gonna be more than a month. So you need to be waiting at least this time period that Dr. Seifel had recommended. And then since many of these patients have received steroids and, and sometimes IL-6 agents, we know there's an increased risk of infection. How aggressively are you recommending that infection be ruled out before listing? I think you have to be realistic. In these COVID patients, they're gonna have super infections. They may be colonized with pseudomonas and other bugs, and that's gonna be part of their course. You need to make sure that these are not multi-drug resistant, that you can manage them after transplant, but the reality is these patients will likely be colonized. You'll never be able to totally rule out someone, I think. These patients have been in ICUs for a long period of time, have sustained architecture that's been distorted in the lungs, leading to being a nice host. Um, so the reality is, be realistic about how many, how much infection you're willing to take on and how you'll take it on. Get your ID team involved early. Make sure you're culturing. Make sure you have good sensitivity profiles on this so that you have a good plan going into transplant and post-transplant. Thank you. Uh, Harpreet, you, in, in your tri-state area, I think you found, you said a 28% mortality. How does that compare to other studies that you've looked at? And as we've talked about, there is not a lot of data out there. So um, it's been a little bit of a mixed bag with variants across. Um, when one of the uh, University of Washington, Madeline, uh, I forget her last name, is one of the physicians that, uh, an infectious disease physician that's running the registry currently, uh, they have published a multi-center study looking at all solid organ recipients and uh, they showed a about 20 to 22% mortality in, in the all solid organ transplant population. When we looked at the lung population, there were 30 lungs included in that study and it was around 30%. So I, I think lung transplant patient uh, population is uh, generally at a higher risk because you know it is the organ that's getting affected. It's an organ that's already uh, an immunocompromised organ that has direct impact from COVID. So I think the, the estimate is going to be somewhere around there between 22 to 30%. So I would say about a third of the patients, uh, generally those that have very high inflammatory markers, those that are requiring uh, life support are at the greatest risk of dying from this disease. And also Harpreet, someone is asking about um, rehab in your post-transplant population, yes. given, given that COVID is out there. Yes. How so, are you handling that? So uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it's very important not just prehabbing patients prior to transplant, but also extremely important to rehab them post-transplant. So we, we came up with a virtual, uh, virtual physical therapy system. We, we partnered with our physical therapists at our hospital, and they started doing virtual classes. Uh, also, some of the other programs have done the same. Uh, I, when I spoke with Penn, uh, they maintained, uh, especially in their early lung transplant patient population, uh, while maintaining all the precautions, social distancing, masks, uh, rehab for specifically those that were early on, as it can impact their outcome moving forward and recovery. David, there are um, several questions on has the CF population, CF transplant, been affected by COVID um, differently than other diseases in terms of listing or going on to transplant to your knowledge in terms of um having covid or no just um it, it, cf in general as as a 
diagnosis? Are we seeing more, less, the same? Has that been stable? Um, at our center, it's been stable. Um, I don't think I've heard that it's been in either increased or decreased in other centers. Um, maybe if Maria and Harpreet have seen that, but I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure that it's um, been uh, a specific uh, by itself uh, issue. Have you seen that either, Maria Harpreet? Any? We haven't seen an increase. I will be honest with you. Uh, psychologically, I think it's been harder on this population. And we've done a lot more virtual visits with our CF group and with our CF patients. Um, and But we haven't seen an increase in COVID infectivity or a, a sort of transplant listing for this population, at least at our center. OK. And I think we have time for one or two more. Harpreet, any increased incidence of um, AMR or ACR that you're aware of? I know CLAD, we don't know yet. Yeah, so I, I reached out to all the colleagues and, uh, you know, after this question was posted, I spoke to all the programs again. So far, nobody has seen it. We've had patients who dropped lung function. Uh, again, early on, we were not doing bronchoscopies because we were in the midst of the pandemic, especially in the Northeast. All, all activity was shut down. Um, there was one patient that we did uh, do a bronchoscopy once uh, restrictions were lifted. We did not see any form of uh, rejection. Now, I think the question really becomes, uh, you know, is there going to be a chronic AMR component? Uh, I don't know the answer to this. Uh, I, I think it'll be a very interesting study. And I was speaking with one of my colleagues about looking at development of what we call donor-specific uh, antibodies moving forward and looking at these patients closely and how they're going to be doing. So if, if even if they're dropping CLAD or, or chronic rejection, is there an underlying component that could be managed? And Debbie, can you comment also? This is, I know, one of your areas of, act, of active research. Um, we, uh, for all of our COVID patients, we didn't have as many as Harpreet did, but we have been checking their donor-specific antibodies um, when they're in the hospital, when they're done, um, where, where we have, not seen a huge increase. Uh, really, the DSAs have been pretty stable. Um, but again, um, also, it's probably also related to timing. Uh, when you look at all infections, um, there's not always the same timing in terms of when they may go up. So we're, we're continuing to follow them. But the ones we've had in the hospital, or the ones that have been in the hospital and come back, um, uh, been able to come back to get blood tests, there hasn't been a huge increase in our DSAs either class one or class two. And then to all panelists, anyone using cell-free DNA testing to check for rejection? Um, we, are, um, we are looking at um, uh, these patients uh, with cell-free DNA, um, not really looking particularly for rejection, but to see um, if there's a difference between uh, COVID and other viruses or other uh, infections versus rejection. Okay. Well, great. I think we'll end on one final kind of a pre predictive type question. The, the question that was posed is, is COVID going to end up increasing the number of lung transplants performed? What if, what if it's, it's predictive? What, if, what do people think? I don't think it's going to be a great increase. I think it's still going to be offered only to a small number of people. And I think the number of individuals that will need a lung transplant, it won't be huge. I think this is going to be a small number. I think we all recognize it. The reason why UNOS made the changes that it did to have that diagnosis code in there is so that we can get an idea and study this and look at the mortality of these small the small cohort. Also, it provides us a blueprint moving forward for different pandemics. My thought is that maybe we won't do more transplants, but I think we'll, as a, I think as a group, we're going to have more uh, consults for transplants. So maybe um, evaluations and, hey, I'd like you to see this patient. I'm sure everybody's doing that now. So maybe not moving towards transplant, but probably increase the numbers of patients we see uh, to at least say you're a good candidate or you might, you might not be. I agree with both my colleagues. Yeah, I agree with, with both of my colleagues. Uh, the only thing I would say, um, Dr. Uh, Debbie Levine had showed a chart uh, of the lung transplant activity. 
and it had completely dropped. So I think there's going to be a lag in the Northeast. Uh, those are programs that are going to have to catch up. I think other programs have had a little bit more uh, of a head start. Um, with regards to catching up, there may be a slightly smaller number of transplants that are done, and they will likely catch up over time. And I think this is going to be a small population. I agree with everyone. All right. Well, I think we're at um, four o'clock and uh, central time at least. And I really want to thank all the presenters today. I want to thank Chess. And this will be available um, online by next week for anyone who wants to access the webinar. So again, thank you very much for participating. Thank you so much, Steph. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, Harpreet. Thank, thank you all so much. It was very nice. Bye, guys. Great time. Bye. Bye.